Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Raymond. So excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to share your story as a second-time founder of Lumina. By the way, I'm a happy and proud to be an angel investor, which is really about making people look good and sound good. I'll let you do the proper pitch. But you've also been a successful founder multiple times and interesting to hear your story. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So Raymond, for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself? Oh, oh gosh. I am the founder at two companies. First is called Scalable. It's a company I started back when I was in high school and it's still going strong today. We have about 300 employees. The second is a company called Lumina, which is a brand new company started this year. It's a company that builds hardware devices that make you look and sound great on video. And I'm using it right now. Now, and I always say you look great all the time. I feel like the background is fake. <laughs> Take that as a compliment. <laughs> so Raymond, can you tell us a little bit more about what you were like growing up? I think for the most part, a normal kid. At age 16, I think something happened. I, for some reason, I just got the entrepreneurial bug just really early on in my life. The first time I experienced it was when I was in, I was in high school. I was ordering t-shirts for a high school tennis club. I thought the prices were too high. I've always been a kid that likes good value, really enjoying going to Costco and just finding the best deals and stuff like that. And I just felt wrong by the t-shirt prices. I decided to make it my own project to investigate why prices were so high. And eventually I came to the conclusion that there's just a really big opportunity here. And I felt like I had to go after it. I felt like I had to solve it first and foremost. That led to the founding of my first company, which was started out as like a t-shirt company, but became like an e-commerce company. Tell us more about what was it like to be a founder buffed so early. <laughs> I didn't really think of it as me being a founder until kind of after the fact. It felt like more like solving a problem, like my own problem. It was a frustration that I had. It was an injustice that I, I felt existed in t-shirts being too expensive. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I just wanted to solve that problem. And then, of course, one thing led to another, and eventually it just became more than solving a problem. It became building a whole company and building an organization and a team and building the whole like machine. The origination point of that was just, okay, well, let's, there's a problem and I want to solve it. What did you call yourself in the early days when you didn't call yourself a founder? <laughs> I think I always disliked titles uh, when I was young. I liked the term founder. I always remember straying away from terms like CEO or president or anything found fancy sounding. Yeah, I was a guy who wanted to fix something that was wrong. And tell us more about those early days because you're doing that without the title, without the thinking about it. And then it's interesting you say like you later discovered and renamed yourself. So talk us a little bit about what that phase was before you knew what you're doing was being a founder and running a startup. Did you just feel like a business? What was it like? Yeah, well, in the very early days, it was... I started out by just looking for places to find cheaper t-shirts, and that happened to be in China. So I would go to other kids in my high school and say, like, hey, like, do you need shirts for your club? 
I can get you them at lower prices because I went to this problem myself. People valued that. People wanted, people saw the shirts I had and they were good quality. And so people started ordering. Eventually got to a point where there was enough kind of interest that I decided to build a website, do some online marketing, which is more scalable than, than me talking with you one-on-one. It's almost, it didn't feel like being a founder. It's almost like me just being a dealer of, of shirts <laughs> to start and then just kind of growing from there. I like the phrase dealer of shirts. That's a nice slogan to have as well. So one thing you mentioned was that you also had to change how you were thinking about a business because at the start you were building out a business and you started saying like there were things about scaling, growing the team. So what was that transition for you from your perspective? Yeah, I think so much has happened over the years. There are kind of multiple phases of the company and I would say it's even hard to come up with a founding date for the company. In the beginning, as I said, it was just like me talking with other kids at the high school and does that count as founding the company or is it later when I actually dropped out of school? I think the big point is probably the dropout point. This was a couple years later. This is after I graduated high school. I was going to school at Berkeley. Three semesters in, things started to really pick up. I decided to drop out. And I think that was probably the, maybe the biggest point in the course of the company. I started working at full-time. I hired three people just off the bat and discovered the art of management and, and having a team and having other people could actually help in achieving this mission that I had. That was kind of a big turning point for me. I will say it's also something that I think I had some trouble with in kind of transitioning from a total like individual contributor founder into a delegator, like a manager and eventually a leader. Almost unintuitive for me. It took a couple of years for me to really accept that, get used to that new role. How did you make a decision to drop out? Because it's a big one. Yeah, it's um, the company was growing. I remember in the back of my mind, always thinking, okay, maybe I'll, I'm one of these people that I'll drop out of school. Throughout high school, throughout middle school, it felt you're used to being in school and you're told this is the path to be in. In the back of my mind, I always, am I one of those people? And like, is that going to be me? Very interesting thing is that I wasn't the one that brought up the question. It was actually my mom came to me one day and she was like, you know, Raymond, you seem to be really focused on your work, so much so that you don't really care about school at this point. And why not just make that official? Like, why not just drop out? I had hesitations, obviously. There was a lot of unknown, such an uncertain path. The way she framed it was simple. It was very persuasive, and I did it. Wow, your mom recommended. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's contrary to my parents and my you know, mental model of how parents work. And so, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was lucky. I was very lucky, I think. Obviously, I was at UC Berkeley as well, so go Bears in a sense. But it's a big decision, and I think a lot of people at university also think about dropping out, especially if you're a founder. Looking back on it, I mean, obviously, you have the benefit of hindsight. You've grown a company to 200 people and so so forth. But you know, for people who are making that decision about whether to drop out or not, I'm sure you get a question all the time. <laughs> How would you advise them to think through the process? Um, so, gosh, I give different advice depending on the person. I'll just share both of them, both pieces of advice. So the way I did it was actually a safer way to do it. I did it when there was already revenue. And even if the company didn't do extremely well, I'd still be able to, I'd be able to survive. And there was some income coming in. That's a safe way to do it. I feel like for students in school, don't utilize the opportunity to take that chance while in school. The least risky time to try to start a company is when you're in school. And I think many people don't use that opportunity. 
anyways, that's how I ended up doing it. At the same time, I also believe that if you're completely all in on something and there's no going back, that increases the chance of success. So I think if, if someone is, is serious, I mean, they're mentally committed to starting a company, they should just drop out. Get this idea of living a having a normal kind of education, just get the idea out of your mind. I tell people to either try to multitask or just fully commit, depending on the nature of their idea. Yeah, so I, I kind of give two pieces of arguably contradictory advice on those. Well, it's not really contradictory because basically you're saying if you have a good idea and you have revenue that proves that there's traction, then you lean more towards saying, why not give it a shot versus the opposite. That being said, do you have any regrets about not going to university and finishing it off or in school life? Overall, I'm, I'm very happy with the decision, but I definitely think college is special in many ways. You get to meet a lot of people that the nature of the interactions in school is very different from what you get afterward. And it's kind of a one-time benefit that you get, that if you miss out on it, just that's it. Yeah, I mean, life is about trade-offs. So one day you have kids and they're going to be hearing about this story about you dropping out and they're going to make a decision about going to college or not. How would you help them think about it or prepare for the process? Oh man, when it comes to my own kids in the future, (laughs) in general, I'm skeptical of the cost and the length it takes to get educated. So I think on a societal level, I think it might be better if education were both less expensive and shorter. From a personal perspective, how I raise my kids, I wouldn't necessarily recommend dropping out because I think there's some value in, in a socially kind of more normal life. And I'd only recommend dropping out if they want to do something really badly. Well, we'll just have to find out in the future how it all shakes out. Thanks for being very real about the advice, your own decision, how you advise people and how you think about your own future for your family, for example. And so there you are, you know, you're building this company and you're scaling it. What are some challenges that you encounter while scaling it? Because I personally felt that too, going from you know, a small team to a larger team and a larger team to a bigger team is actually, I think things really change around the 30% mark. I don't know what you think about it. Yeah, I think the 30% mark is magical. I mean, I, I'm sure you felt this as well. Just like when you're at, I would say, 15, 20, 25 people, everyone knows each other. You're super aligned on the mission. It's still a small enough room where you could have like one dashboard, like one TV on the wall, and everyone looks at the metric and is like super, super pumped about that metric. And the kind of energy in that environment is just it's insane. Beyond that, it gets harder to maintain that across the entire organization. I think it's easier to maintain it in parts of the organization, but we've had trouble getting the entire organization to feel that way. And I think it's a common kind of management challenge just in, in general, if you look at management literature anywhere. Yeah, so in some ways, you look back at that time and you kind of, that was really nice, but it's also part of the journey. You have to figure out how to adapt to the, the new situation that you're in. How did you learn to adapt? Painfully, it's very challenging. For us, it was actually especially challenging because we have multiple offices and different geographies and different time zones. And it kind of gets this problem of kind of remote work, remote communication, which is kind of what Lumina is getting into solving. But the less connection people have between each other, the harder it is to run an organization that has a very strong culture and very aligned team members. There's a lot of just general stuff that you should do, clear ownership over different things. A lot of communication, a good management team that does the right types of communication with their team members and find ways for it to cascade down, all the kind of normal, good best practice things. 
The one thing that's very unresolved, in my opinion, is remote and cross time zone. I don't know if any company that has really, really figured it out. I think some companies have good ideas, but no one's doing it. I don't think anyone's doing it perfectly yet. Yeah, I totally agree with you about the time zone dynamic. It's really tough. Were there any resources or process that you did in terms of getting up to speed of trying to figure out how to relearn the management wheel? <laughs> Basically, what did I try to do? Yeah, exactly. Like, how did you learn how to manage a larger team? Obviously, you managed to get from point A to point B and point B to point C. Just curious, at that scaling stage, were there any books or mentors that made a difference from your perspective? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the regrets I think I had was not scalable is bootstrapped. We don't have outside investors. We don't have like a traditional board per se. Like many, I think Silicon Valley founders have like a whole a lot of like advisors and investors who've seen a lot of different situations. And I, I don't think I had that, but. I did have a good amount of executive coaching and still do work with some really, really brilliant people who have a lot of experience. That helps. Most of my improvement probably came from, I'd say some combination of those two. Yeah, exec coaching and working with just brilliant people. How did you find a good executive coach? I got kind of lucky. There's a service I use called Torch. They basically kind of have a group of people. You can interview different people and choose the person that resonate most strongly with. I think I feel like executive coaching is an interesting job because it's almost like a blend between a business kind of a mentor and a like a therapist. Arguably more of a therapist than a business mentor. And I think it's that's extremely useful and high value. I would recommend it for, for anyone who's running a growing company and doesn't use an exec coach yet. And I too have an executive coach and sometimes I do think I lucked out a little bit. But it definitely took a while for me to warm up. You can say see results, I guess that's one way of looking at it, but also feel comfortable with the relationship. I'm just kind of curious, you're open to share a little bit about how you think people should warm up or prepare to have that. Because sometimes it doesn't work for them or they don't feel comfortable in getting one or it doesn't work out. So I don't know if there's any advice you would give to people thinking about or trying to get an executive coach. Yeah, I feel like it's about finding someone that you're comfortable with. I feel like for certain people, it'll never happen, or at least it'll be much harder to happen. It's like it's kind of like dating. I mean, if you could find someone that you click with, then it could be pretty magical. How would you say you've evolved as a leader from early days as a founder to where you are today, at least in the context of leading scalable? How would you say you're different as a person or personality or how you manage things? Yeah, I think the primary thing that changed about me is the way in which I gone from individual contributor type leader to a the reverse of that, I guess like a manager type leader. But both work. I think some people like to go very deep and they like to get their hands on things. And I think a lot of people, a lot of founders, especially more technical founders, I think tend to be this way. They want to go deep into problems and solve things themselves. I think I still have some of that in me. I still find it fun to get involved, but it comes down to how much leverage you're getting, like how much you're actually accomplishing by getting into the weeds. Yeah, I think overall I've transitioned into becoming much better at delegating, much better at getting people to kind of optimizing for outcomes instead of optimizing for process and doing less stuff myself. That's like the biggest struggle is doing less stuff yourself, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's a struggle. <laughs> this just feels criminal. You spend all your time doing all the stuff yourself as a founder, and then the reward for being successful and doing that stuff is 
you have to do less stuff yourself. <laughs> and that's why you have to find another company. <laughs> so that's a good segue. So why build a second company? I mean, you know how painful it is, you know how much work it is. Why are you off to build a second company? Very painful, and especially the type of company. Second company is also a, uh, like a difficult company to build. We're building a hardware product. But it's actually the same story format, I would say, which is it was a personal problem, personal problem that I faced at Scalable. So we were talking about how as the org expanded, we needed to figure out how to communicate better across offices and across geographies and time zones. One of the limiting factors was just how you could present yourself on a video call. So I would notice that a lot of people would have really bad camera setups or really bad microphone setups, and it would just make them hard to communicate with. It was very challenging. Whereas some people who had excellent camera setups, they, they not only were easy to communicate, but they kind of commanded more attention, almost arguably more respect in meetings. I felt like something that would just immediately make cross-office collaboration better was just if everyone had a great setup. And so what we tried to do was we did some research and then we tried to find if, if there was a good solution like out of the box for everyone. I mean, the answer is there isn't. The best webcam on the market is the Logitech class of items. There's a fun fact here, which is Logitech sells, I think, something in the range of a billion dollars in webcams every year. And their top selling webcam is about 10 years old. It was released around the same time as the iPhone 4S. It's a very old product. No innovation in years, in almost a decade. They're just selling. They're just making all this money. And the product isn't good. It's not right. Yeah, personal problem, perceived injustice. Raymond starts the company. That's <laughs> kind of what happened. Yeah, Batman. There we go. I got kind of lucky because around the same time, I was having conversations with a good friend of mine, Mike, who's now the co-founder at Lumina. He previously he was working on a hardware startup. He was winding it down. We were just talking about different opportunities in the market. And I brought this up. It really resonated with him because he felt a similar problem. He was in Taipei and he was working with people in Indonesia and China and some other countries. We decided to look into whether this is possible. And very soon after, we kind of discovered this is a solvable problem. And if we just can execute correctly, then we could definitely make the best webcam on the market and really shock people with how good it could be. As you built this company, how are you different, you think, as a founder this time around versus the last time? Yeah, so multiple dimensions in this question. One of the things that's happening is I'm working, I'm the CEO of two companies right now. With my first company, I was kind of the, the ultimate IC. I did everything you could imagine by myself, and I did that for years. This is kind of almost the opposite. In a way, I'm, I'm trying to do the least I can to produce the outcome that we want. And so it's thinking a lot more about leverage and it's thinking a lot more about outcome-driven thinking that I think I didn't develop until several years into the first company. That's one dimension. Other dimensions, a lot more thinking about team and people and culture. Okay, well, what happens after X event happens? So, for example, we have our Indiegogo campaign happening right now. I'm kind of the one that's driving the, okay, well, what happens after that? And then based on those outcomes, what, what happens after that? Trying to help map that out and prepare for it in a way that also balances out the short-term needs we have and just the resource constraints that we have. 
Yeah, so some combination of thinking much more about leverage, thinking, being much more outcome driven, thinking longer term, doing more planning, thinking about different dimensions of how things could fail or succeed and helping guide the team through that as opposed to me doing everything myself. That's amazing. And I feel that's how I felt between my first and my second company as well. How do you think about the future? Because now as you build these two companies, do you feel about your energy? Do you feel about your balance? How do you manage all of that? I like working on stuff. This is fun. If I have too much free time, I naturally start thinking about stuff that I could work on, stuff I could build. In terms of how do I manage my time, it actually works out really nicely because the Lumina team is all in Asia. And I'm kind of working during Asia hours with Lumina and working US hours for Scalable. It works really well. I think if both were US time, that would that'd be tricky. So I don't know how Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk do it. I think they split it by day of week. That seems suboptimal for other reasons. Then, then there's certain days of the week which people are just waiting on them. Yeah, maybe they've figured out something, the magic of delegation that most of us haven't. I guess there's nothing else to do during the pandemic. Yeah, I guess that helps. <laughs> right now, things are open, though. And so I moved to Texas during the pandemic. One of the reasons is because things were open at the time I moved. I was working anyway, so I guess it didn't make that much of a difference. Wrapping things up here, could you share with us a time when you were brave? Certainly. The journey is toughest when you're just getting started. For me, I think with the second company saying, okay, hardware is hard and you shouldn't do hardware, just focus on a software company instead. The second time around, I felt a lot of conviction because not just conviction, but I felt a lot of confidence kind of going into it and just I felt like I could overcome whatever challenges there were. But the first time around, the reason I dropped out of school was essentially it was for a printing company. Like we were printing t-shirts and there were thousands of other companies doing this exact same thing. And most people thought I was a complete fool for doing it. It didn't seem like that interesting of a business idea. There was a lot of push and pull going into it. Ultimately, I'm super thankful for my mom for giving a lot of clarity, I think, in that decision. But it wasn't an easy one because there was a lot of skepticism from not just people around me, but just from general pressure in the world that like this class of idea that I was going after wasn't a good class of idea. And I did it anyway. It ended up working well. We started off with free t-shirt printing and it evolved into something greater. I think there was some level of irrationality in that decision and that I think critics were right that just like on paper, this, this type of idea is challenging to go after. I think I had some type of irrationality or hidden conviction that it led to something that was much greater. And I think I would have very much regretted it if I didn't make that decision. How did you handle the fear and the regret and the thinking? In terms of dropping out or? For me, for that decision, but also in general. I think I just had to view it from sort of a first principles perspective and just assessing the opportunity and assessing what could come out of the opportunity. So rather than looking at it just more externally, I tried to look at it more, more fundamentally to get to the conclusion that I did. Thanks so much, Raymond, for coming on the show. I'd love to paraphrase the three big things that I learned from this conversation. The first, of course, thank you so much for sharing about the actual decision-making behind dropping out. <laughs> I guess that's one of the big milestone. But it's not just a story about dropping out, but it's really a story about you making a decision to focus and build a company further from where you've already been at. 
And so I think that's been quite an experience to hear that and quite a ride from our perspective to hear it. Second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing your learnings as a serial founder, what you've learned from your first time to the second time and the things you would do differently. So that's really been interesting. And the third thing is thank you so much for, I think, a lot of the good advice on how to be a better founder, from executive coaching to letting go to being more outcomes oriented. And that's a lot of wisdom that's in there. Thank you so much for thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed being on the show. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.